I'm Paul Comfort. Welcome to our special year-end edition of Transit Unplugged. On this episode, we're excited to take a retrospective view of what's happening over 2019 and all the um, various visits we've done and some of the trends that are coming out of our interviews with top transit CEOs from around the world. We'll also have um, an interview with David Franks, a CEO from Australia of a transit system there, all part of this special retrospective 2019 year-end program. About two years ago, after I uh, began work for the Trapeze Group Corporation, I was asked, uh, hey, Paul, do you want to do a podcast? Part of my role was to be an industry ambassador. And I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to do that. It was a continuation of a career I'd had part-time in radio over the years, worked over 16 years, had a program called Comforts Corner, and was the news director for the University of Maryland, Baltimore County radio system back when I was in college, and had done a lot of interviews. And so this seemed to be an extension of that. When they asked me, you know, who what would you like the podcast to be about? I knew immediately what it should be, and that is I wanted to interview my fellow CEOs of transit systems. I had just come off a, over a two-year stint as CEO of the Maryland Transit Administration in Baltimore City, where I ran the, the bus, the light rail, the subway system, commuter bus, commuter train, and paratransit service, and was involved in building the Purple Line. At the time, the nation's largest uh, public-private partnership, a $5 billion project to do a 16-mile light rail line outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, we had just gone through the reboot of our transit system in Baltimore, naming it Baltimore Link, rerouting most of the routes and uh, rebranding the system as well, built a radio station, actually the only radio station I'm aware of, run by a transit system, an FM radio station, WTTZ, 93.5 FM, and uh, wanted to kind of continue what I was doing there in the public realm by talking to other CEOs around the country, finding out what they're doing and and, uh, promoting some of their greatest ideas. So that's what we've done. Over the last two years, we've been around Uh, not just the country now, but around the world. 2019 saw the show really go international. In 2018, we'd done a special show on autonomous vehicles in Switzerland for our trapezio vehicle there. But this year, we really went international. I was able to go to Australia with our Australian company, Trapeze. They invited me to come there, and I was able to interview a number of rail CEOs in Melbourne, in Sydney, in Canberra, and also went to Europe. Flex Denmark was a great interview there with some of their folks, their nationwide paratransit co-op. And then went to the United Kingdom, where our friends at Trapeze in the United Kingdom invited me to visit a bunch of their CEOs and executives, including T. FL and places like uh, Glasgow, Scotland, and uh, Wales, Cardiff, Wales, and Leeds, and places like that. It was a great, great time to visit there. And then I recently went through Canada and did uh, a number of interviews in Canada of, of big CEOs of transit systems on both coasts. And uh, then it, we've also um, been involved with um, a number of associations. The American Public Transit Association, APTA, gave us their first place award for their Ad Wheel Awards program for 2019 in our category. Last year, we were ranked in the top 12 business podcasts in October of 2019. 2018. And uh, the show has been extended now to live programs where we're sitting on stage with a bunch of CEOs and basically doing a podcast interview with them, but live on stage and with several of them. We recently did one at CUDA, the Canadian Urban Transit Association in Calgary at their conference where we had hundreds of people gather for a great interview program. Take a look inside the lives and careers and the projects of uh, the CEOs that are on the guest show. And we've also done this at a number of other associations. So the program continues to grow. And it's really given me an opportunity to have great insight into what's happening in our transit industry, the trends that are happening. I'm able to speak now across the country at conferences and at transit systems to their top leaders about what are the latest trends that are happening and also to take a look into the future. What will the future of public transportation hold? That's actually the subject of a book I'm writing 
along with many of CEOs and executives around the country and the world that will be out in March of this next year. But let's take a look back at the top trends that I've been able to identify over the last year. The, the top trends in North America will focus on on this program. Uh, these are uh, the trends that I've picked up from the interviews. As you probably know, all of my podcast interviews are done live in person. We don't do these over the telephone. I visit them normally on site at their facility, at their garage, take a tour, meet their staff, sometimes teach a class to their staff. We do a big splash day. And by the way, if you're listening and you'd like me to visit your transit system, just contact me on LinkedIn and I'd like me to come by and visit your CEO or you are a CEO who'd like to be interviewed. Seriously, send me a note. And if we can work it into our travel schedule, we'll do that. Trapeze has been very good to kind of let me pick and choose where I want to go and, and interview the CEOs who I'm interested in what they're doing. So I've identified three top trends, I think inductively. And so the first top trend in North America I see is autonomous vehicles in public transit. As you know, this last year, the United States Department of Transportation issued uh, their AV guidelines 3.0 and released $60 million for people to try pilots. And there's a number of them going on in Vegas and Austin and Columbus and Grand Rapids, Rhode Island, Toledo, Dublin. There's university shuttles in places like Houston, et cetera. And uh, a lot of major transit systems are dipping their toes in the water of trying an autonomous vehicle. There is some pushback from the union's part, concerned about jobs, understandably so. And so transit systems are looking at ways where they can utilize these uh, autonomous small buses, shuttle buses, which carry between 10 to 12 passengers and normally don't go over 20 miles per hour. And normally there's still somebody on bus, a safety kind of um, uh, auxiliary person who's on the vehicle to welcome people and make sure it goes well. And most people are running these for free and they're running them on routes that they don't currently have in tourist areas or for campus shuttles, for parking, uh, et cetera, to get people to, between buildings. People are looking at ways in which these can be effectively utilized without causing too much uh, drama in their local system. And so that is the first of the top trends in North America. The second is mobility as a service or mass. This is something that's come on strong, a concept that's come on strong. It came from probably, as you know, Helsinki, Finland, and now has spread across uh, the world. It's especially being uh, tried out here in North America. Basically, it allows someone, usually the public transit agency in a city, to become a mobility aggregator. They pull together all of the uh, various mobility options now in a city. Public transit agencies now no longer really have a, a monopoly on all the public mobility in the city. There are obviously, you know, Uber and Lyft and other micro transit providers like Via, et cetera, coming into markets. There are rental cars like Zip cars that are available for people. Uh, there are scooters and e-bikes and and sometimes ferries and even other options, taxi cabs, et cetera, for moving people around. And so the kind of the definition of what it means to be a public transit agency is really changing in North America, and we're becoming more mobility providers. And folks who are embracing this mass approach are saying, hey, my transit system, in addition to running the public bus, you know, the light rail, the metro system, the commuter bus, commuter train, paratransit, we actually want to aggregate all of the mobility services in our city or in our region uh, kind of under our umbrella. And we can put them all on one smartphone app, which is how people kind of <laughs> manage their lives these days. And this can include trip planning, trip payment, all on with one push of the button. You can ask, you know, I want to go the fastest way there. Or the cheapest way there, and we'll give you options such as, hey, out, you know, the Uber will pick you up at your house and take you to the train station, take the train station into town, and when you get there, there is a scooter within, you know, 50 feet which you can get on and ride the last quarter mile to your office if you'd like, and push this button, and it's all paid for behind the scenes. 
that's kind of what mobility as a service is. It's um, pulling all those mobility options together as a service on your phone. There are three basic models happening now across America. Uh, there is the agency-led model, uh, which uh, Dallas, the, the Dallas Dart system is really taking the lead on, where they've pulled them all together and created an app, and all those mobility options are on their cell phone app. Portland is another city. Berlin, if you want an international example, is also doing that well. Then there is the private provider-led option. Denver really takes the lead here where they've worked with Uber, uh, the, the transportation networking company. For So that if you go to the Uber app, uh, options pop up for public transit as well as Uber cars to take you. So they're kind of allowing a private provider to lead there. And then the third option is a private company, which really was the model that came out of Helsinki where the WIM app came out. And a number of major companies, um, software app companies now are developing mass apps for public transit agencies. Many agencies feel like, you know, look, I, I, we don't have the expertise to develop and keep updated with an app. We'll just have a private company do it for us, either white label it or run it with their own label. And uh, our options will be on there. So those are the three real models. No one has really taken the lead into which option they're going to be. The private company and the agency-led are the two options that most agencies, but not one single approach now is kind of like the agreed-upon industry standard. And of course, the next steps are including price capping, where you limit the amount someone can pay, even if they're low income and they can't purchase a monthly pass. If they purchase one at a time, it'll be capped when they get to the amount of the monthly pass so that they don't have to pay more than them. And then uh, also subscriptions is something that's not happened a lot in the U.S. Uh, it's happened in Europe, but that's where the idea where you could pay one fee like $500. You might be a gold uh, – have a gold subscription where you get you know 25 trips on Uber up to 10 miles or Lyft, and you can ride unlimited transit and maybe you know 10 times renting a car for X amount of miles. Where It, it aggregates – multiple options for you and you pay one fee. And the concept would be that, you know, a family wouldn't necessarily have to have two vehicles anymore. You could really get away with one that way, maybe none, uh, if you use uh, these subscription models um, in the United States. And so, you know, the cost of having a car has been totaled out to maybe $950 a month. And obviously these subscriptions would be hundreds of dollars less than that. So it would make financial sense for someone to take a look at that. And so that's the second option, uh, the second big trend. And the third big trend in North America is really um, ridership. What are people doing to increase ridership? As you know, over the last few years, public transit ridership across uh, North America has been on a decline, a five-year decline where there's lots of statistics out there. You can just Google it and find it. But I think we bottomed out in 2017-18, and now we're starting to see an increase in a number of cities. The National Transit Database reports, NTD reports, reports for 2018 by mode of the largest 35 regions in the United States for transit usage saw that ridership was rising in cities like Seattle, Pittsburgh, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, Detroit, and Las Vegas. And there are a number of other cities like Richmond who maybe don't meet that uh, top 35, but they're also seeing an increase in ridership. So what are people doing to see an increase in ridership? Well, I can tell you based on my interviews with dozens of CEOs, not just here in the United States, but also in Canada and in the United Kingdom, the, the systems that are seeing an increase in ridership are really doing three 
steps, and I call this the silver bullet to increase ridership, and offer it to you here today for you to consider for your transit system. If you're not looking into these three, this is what other systems are doing that are seeing an increase in ridership, and that is to they reboot their bus network, meaning uh, we did this in Baltimore. So we had you know these 65 bus routes that most of them had been laid out 50 years ago when there were still trolleys, really, and they've, a lot of them followed the trolley systems, and most of the routes, two-thirds of our routes in Baltimore went to the downtown central business district, and yet that's not where everybody wanted to go anymore. Since over the last 50 years, there'd been an explosion of population in the suburbs. And so while there may be 145,000 jobs in the central business district, there was hundreds of thousands of more jobs out in the suburbs. And yet the routes had not really been universally adjusted to take that into consideration. Yeah, there was tweaks a few times a year based on input we were getting, but not a wholesale reboot of the system. And this was really kicked off by by Houston, who did it first, uh, Tom Lambert down there. And uh, he actually... Uh, was very kind to me and brought, allowed me to bring a team down while I was at MTA. And they spent a day doing a day-long symposium with us and showing us lessons learned. We came back with 10 lessons learned, came back and were able to reboot our entire bus network, adjusting each route to take people where they wanted to go using heat maps, et cetera. There's a number of consultants like Jarrett Walker and others who have helped cities around the country do this. And it's really what they're doing to focus on jobs and population shifts. And so two-thirds of your routes don't always need to go to the downtown central business district. And also a lot of the routes didn't take into consideration the new rail options that had come on board, like light rail and subway, and they really need to be interlinked so that they use all the modalities to uh, better kind of um, combine with each other. So that's the first step that people are doing is to reboot their bus networks or to reconfigure their routes of their buses to take people where they want to go today. And there's a number of ways to do that. Uh, usually involves you know dozens or hundreds of public meetings and lots of input from the public. But in the end, many, many transit systems are either doing this, have done it, or are looking to do it, and they are seeing an increase in ridership. As part of that bus route network reboot, they're also increasing the frequency of key routes. What do I mean by that? Well, there's generally an industry standard now that we agree upon, which is our routes that are have 15-minute or less headways are considered frequent transit. Why? Well, what this means is that someone doesn't have to use a bus schedule anymore. You don't have to find on your phone or on a piece of paper, you know, oh, the bus is coming at 3.14 p.m. No, you just wait, and the bus will be there, just like if you're waiting for a train, a subway car, or a light rail system that would just be coming on a regular basis. It really frees up a person to have less reliance on a schedule and more reliance on headway management for a transit system than time point management. This is a key to people really wanting to get on the bus. If a bus is coming every 10 minutes, I don't have to worry about it. I know I can just go out. That convenience factor means a lot as people are responding to surveys about why they choose this. We don't even like standing behind a few people in the grocery store anymore, much less stand at a bus stop for 30 minutes waiting for a bus that sometimes doesn't even come then. The final of the three steps that people are doing to see increased ridership is doing what I call reducing friction. There's so much friction that slows a bus down that the buses, the bus routes in a lot of cities are not really productive, meaning the, uh, the, the how fast they can roll through a city sometimes maybe down to five or six miles per hour. I mean, you could, you know, you could jog faster than that and in rush hour, sometimes slower than that. And so you've got to reduce the friction to help the bus speed up, to make people feel like it's an efficient uh, modality for them to utilize to be transported. So this includes things like adding bus-only lanes in your city that are enforced, not just put on there, but they're enforced. Uh, transit signal priority, TSP, that allows traffic lights to turn green faster or to stay green longer so that buses can get through quickly and queue jumping, etc. And then any type of e-fairing where you can take the fairing off the bus. I know in Baltimore, we were allowing people to 
um, purchase day tickets at the fare box, and we figured out that calculated that took 30 seconds per transaction or 56,000 wasted hours of productivity while people were standing behind them waiting to get on the bus. And so moving off anything that takes a long time off the bus, a lot of people are you know, moving now toward uh, tap-and-go cards with credit cards or toward your phone being the object where you use your Apple Pay account or some other account on your phone, or even the system cards, uh, multi-use cards. We call it the charm card in Baltimore where you tap and go um, as you get on the vehicle. Any, anyway, and using validators on your bus and opening up both doors on your vehicle to let people come and go and anything to reduce the friction that slows the bus down. Those are the three steps to increase ridership. Reboot your bus network, increase the frequency of key routes, and reduce the friction. Those are the keys that we're seeing that systems that are seeing increases in ridership are focusing on. And those are the three top trends that we've seen over the last year in North America, and that is uh, tip, dipping your toe in using autonomous vehicles and public transit, mobility as a service, and three steps to increase ridership. Those are the top trends in North America. And now it's exciting to uh, move forward with kind of wrapping up this intro part of the show and talking about um, David Franks, who is our guest now. I think you'll find his interview exciting and interesting as we take a look at what's happening in Australia as we again focus on the international flavor of Transit Unplugged. Thanks so much for being with us over this journey over 2019 and 2018 as we head into 2020. Hope you'll stay with us and send us ideas of uh, what you think we ought to be focused on. We also do once a quarter innovation shows. Our first program in this first quarter I think you'll love is going to be on alternative fuels. We take a look at electric and uh, CNG and hydrogen fuels as an option. That'll be coming up later this quarter. For now, enjoy our year-end program and interview with David Franks. I'm Paul Comfort. Thank you for being with us on Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort, and you're listening to Transit Unplugged. And today we're at the UITP Global Transportation Summit in Stockholm, Sweden. And I'm excited to have with me David Franks, who is CEO of Keolis Downer, one of the world's largest transportation contracting companies. David, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be here. David has a big responsibility. Why don't you tell us about what you do? Yes, so I'm responsible, as you've just indicated, for um, Keolis Downer. I'm the CEO. We uh, operate... uh, a number of public transport services in Australia, right across Australia, uh, bus services uh, from Perth across to Adelaide, across to Sydney, Newcastle, uh, up to Brisbane. So as you can see, right across Australia, uh, we operate light rail services. So the Yarra Trams Network, the largest tram network in the world, um, quite an old tram network. We have a very modern tram network in uh, Gold Coast, so we operate that, which is uh, one of the best performing tram networks in the world. And also we've uh, got a multimodal contract, which is bus, uh, light rail now, and ferries in Newcastle. So we've got a a big portfolio of businesses in Australia. That's great. And the company is Keolis Downer, so (coughs) tell me some about that. So a lot of our listeners are familiar with Keolis, one of the world's largest companies. What is Downer and how does that all work? Well, Downer's roots are in originally in uh, New Zealand. They're a, they're a big construction company in New Zealand. They do a lot of um, engineering activity. They are bigger now in Australia, so most people would know them as an Australian company. They're a 49% shareholder in the joint venture company. Um, and Keolis, uh, obviously, is a major shareholder, just. So uh, it's... Um, 
Uh, you combine kind of your strengths? We do. I mean, we're able to offer some things that others can't offer. So we, um, on the downer side, they're very good in, in design and construction activity. And Keolis, of course, we are a very good operator and maintainer of public transport services. Yeah, we were just talking about um, a lady that works for you, Pamela. She was showing me pictures of they're rehabbing the light rail vehicles for, I guess, Yara Tram? Yes, for Yara, yeah. So uh, um, obviously we can, we can call upon the strengths of downer in engineering. Um, particularly around uh, uh, that they've got a history in train manufacturer manufacturing and 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 today more maintenance activities in rail so we can call upon their strengths to help us um, and of course we've got strengths of our own in the same area yeah that's great so um how long have you been at Keolis and what did you do before this? Well, tell us a little about your career, how you ended up here. Well, I've been in, I've been in Australia just over a year. So um, prior to that, I was um, over five years in Ireland of running the, I was chief executive of the Irish Rail Network uh, in the Republic, um, based in Dublin. Uh, and uh, before that, I've got a, a long history in heavy rail in the UK. I've uh, been managing director of a number of the train companies. I grew up in the uh, in old British Rail, and uh, at privatisation moved over into the train operating side of the business. And so I've uh, I've got a huge amount of experience there. I guess my biggest job I had in in the UK, I was head of uh, the National Express Group uh, when we were running nine rail franchises and the Birmingham. Uh, that's Coach where Network. I've heard your name. I think when you were at National Express, yeah. yeah so. so I was running all the UK operations for National Express uh, for a, a period of time. So I was just in the UK like three weeks ago. Spent a week interviewing people all over TFL and Glasgow and SPT. Yeah. I didn't get over to Ireland. We talked a lot while I was there about the bus network. Can you tell us some about the rail network in the UK and how that all works since you spent so much time there? You'll know it's a very, very busy rail network. I recall at, at privatization the... Uh, uh, the, the views were that um, the private sector will be managing decline in the rail industry, and mm. it's gone completely the other way around. I mean, there are more people using the rail network in the UK these days than than ever before in the whole history of railways in the wow. UK. Wow. With a smaller network as well, so you can imagine it's quite a complex network. But some of the things you see now, I mean, uh, it wasn't that long ago when it took you nearly three hours to get to Manchester. Now there's a train There's a train every 20 minutes uh, from London to Manchester. Likewise, there's a train every 20 minutes from London to Birmingham. Journey times have been slashed. So the private sector has brought a huge amount of innovation into the into UK rail network. But it's quite complex. There's a lot of operators. Yes. Um, there's a, an infrastructure manager in network rail that controls the access to... Uh, to the network, right? Uh, so it's a it's a complicated contractual matrix, but um, people like myself have learned a huge amount from managing through contracts versus sort of the old command and control structure that existed in in British Rail days. So how is rail funded in the United Kingdom? Well, it's similar to most railways. It requires subsidy to, in the okay. main, it requires subsidy to to enable the, the, the network to survive. But there's a different approach in the UK. There's a there's a a real push to ensure that the user pays more okay. than the taxpayer. Okay. And so, whereas in here in Australia and in other places I've worked, probably seventy five percent of the cost of the operations would be it's paid subsidy. for by subsidy. Right. Uh, in the UK, it's closer to fifty fifty. Okay. That's what I was wondering how that worked. Yeah. Very interesting. So tell us. I mean, this is a little off topic from Australia, but tell us about I, the Irish Rail Network and how and and a little bit about the the structure of how Ireland works with the United Kingdom, and then we'll segue back to oh, Australia. But gosh, it's just yeah, interesting to me. Yeah. Well, with Brexit and all the rest of the moment, yes, you're, exactly. you're getting to very. It's a hot topic, some, right? Yeah. It certainly is. I mean, the Irish the Irish Rail Network is, is is a small network. It connects all of the major 
you know, the, the, the centres of, of Ireland. There are some parts of it are, are, are in the rural island, which probably is not best use of, of, of a rail, rail asset. Right, yeah. Um, because you could probably provide uh, better service with buses, which you could do more frequently, for yes, example. Yeah. It's a lot of single-line track. It's a great country. It's a great network. It's got great people. And uh, um, I really, I thoroughly enjoyed my time over in Ireland. Now, were you in Northern Ireland? or? Uh, well, we, we, I was based in Dublin, operating the Republic of Ireland um, network, because there's two networks. There's also a, a Northern Ireland network. Okay. But we did operate uh, jointly with Northern Ireland, the, the Belfast to uh, Dublin service. And so then you segue down to Keolis Downer in Australia. Yeah. Let's talk some about the rail network in Australia. You run a lot of the trams and how they're funded and how that's different from how it's done in the United Kingdom. Well, a bit like uh, Ireland, there's different gauges in Australia. Okay. The heavy rail network. So Ireland was uh, was not the standard gauge. It was oh. five foot two, which is okay. an interesting... Uh, uh, interesting yeah. uh, thing when you think that Ireland at one time was part of the, um, you know, the, the, the British uh, right. Empire. So, but it had uh, a separate gauge of the tracks, huh? It had a different gauge. And um, so over here in Australia, there's, uh, there's, there's three different gauges. Okay. And uh, so that brings, in terms of interconnectivity between uh, places, it brings its own issues. The railway really, the, the passenger railway is more of a commuter type. I mean, I say that a bit uh, flippantly because it's obvious, obviously more than that, but where the railway does a good job, the passenger railway does a good job here is in, is in moving big numbers of people into city centres. I do think there is some gaps in the rail network. So, for example, if you think that um, with Vir- Virgin uh, Australia alone, there's a, in the mornings there is a flight out of Sydney every 15 minutes to Melbourne. And, every 15 minutes? Uh, and that's only one airline. Wow. And then... So you can see that there is huge demand between Sydney and Melbourne, two largest cities in uh, in Australia. You would imagine that would be a good job for for heavy rail. And I, I, I was last week. I was in France. I um, I went to look at um, the Keolis Bordeaux network. And if you think about it, Bordeaux is six hundred kilometres from Paris, and the journey time is two hours and seven minutes. Um, I uh, Melbourne to Sydney is about, from memory, about nine hundred kilometres. So you know, add add a add a fifty percent add fifty percent to the journey time. You could be doing that in three hours. It takes you at least three hours by the time you got to the airport. Oh the time yeah, you for the plane. Right. Um, you know, so for me, that's an obvious yes. place where rail could do a good job. And then I would highlight another location for a different purpose. Newcastle is, as I said earlier, we are in New South Wales. We're operating a multimodal contract, and in Newcastle. It's relatively close to Sydney. It's about 160 kilometres away, but it takes three hours on the train. If those two cities were together, some of the problems of Sydney could be alleviated by people moving out to the likes of Newcastle, and then they would have you know, a commute into the city and it could ease some of the other issues. So, so heavy rail generally isn't exploited to the extent that you would see in, in, in Europe. And, of course, in Europe, in recent times, high-speed rail has become... Yeah, a big big thing. Oh yeah, here it's um, it's not seen in quite the same way. It's to do with the the distances between places, but as the, the sort of places I've just indicated for me are perfect for heavy rail. Mm-hmm. That's good. And and how is that uh, funded in Australia? How is the heavy rail? 
in, in much the same way as I was describing earlier, I, I believe it's around... 75, 75, 25? Yeah. So is it coming typical. from the state governments or the federal government? or The state governments run the, the rail networks. Okay. Um, so there are some different arrangements in, in different states. But when there are upgrades, the federal government is often asked to contribute to yes. upgrades. That makes sense. That's yeah. similar to the United States, too, yeah. yeah. You were telling me that one of your uh, tram networks is one of the highest performing ones in the world. Can you tell me about that? The Gold Coast uh, light rail system, relatively new, built in uh, 2014. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, in, um, so it was built in, uh, there was one, the first phase was through, through the Gold Coast. The second phase was built just in time for the Commonwealth Games and yeah. linked Helensvale railway station. So now you can get from Brisbane down onto the light rail network and into, into the Gold Coast. And we are hopeful of extending it through to a place called Burley Heads, which is halfway to, to Coolangatta Airport, on the, so the Gold Coast Airport. And this is, in the Commonwealth Games, the minister, the transport minister at the time, actually was highlighting the star of the shows were the Australian athletics in the Commonwealth Games. But he said the highlight of the transport system was the Gold Coast light rail. Nice. And it's performing exceptionally well. It's got, it, it delivers its contractual commitments. Over the last year or so, it's uh, almost every month it's, it's, it's hitting 100% of its contractual commitments. And when it's not hitting 100%, it's 999 so what kind of on-time performance are we talking That's about? That's what I'm talking about. But is 100% of the time it's on time? It, against its contractual but, Yes. I mean, yeah. yeah. So great. it's actually, it is, as I say, it's, it's, it's world-class performance. Yes. And what you see is that uh, passengers are, are loving it. And so when we're talking about an extension, whereas, you know, when you first talk about light rail systems, people are all, you know, they have very different views about yes. whether or not it's good or bad. On Gold Coast, people are almost demanding the extension through to Burley Heads and then onwards to the airport. That's interesting. Yeah. So what's in the future for Keolis Downer in Australia and wherever you're operating? Well, I, I could, if, if I just draw a comparison, when I was in Ireland, the country had just come through its worst economic crisis ever. Mm. Well, probably not ever, but its worst economic crisis in recent, in recent history. And the government had no money. It was reliant on loans from the European Union. Ah. The, the government didn't know whether it could afford its health service, its education service, its policing service. So transport, you can imagine, was very low in the pecking order. Right. So there was no money. It was a very, very difficult environment. The fare box had collapsed because the economy had collapsed. The subsidy had, it, um, for the railways was reduced by the biggest of all public services. So it was a very, very difficult environment. And I come to Australia and you see a lot of investment, an economy that's been growing for 25 years, huge amount of uh, catch-up in terms of, of infrastructure investment. And so what, what, um, what I see is great opportunity for people providing public services. Uh, we have the challenge of managing public services through a lot of disruption whilst investment is uh, taking place. Um, so we, you know, obviously we have skills that we can do to help assist in that area. And then, of course, we're well positioned to actually operate some of the new, the new services that are coming along. So that only a week or two ago, a new driverless metro, the first in in uh, right, uh, yeah, in, in Sydney. In, I in saw Sydney, that. That's uh, awesome. Opened, yeah. So, um, uh, so that that that's one. There's two more driverless metro lines to be built. There's an okay. extension of the one that's just opened to be built. There's light rail being built. We've just opened a light rail system in Newcastle. Um, it's the first light rail system of its kind. It's so uh, it's catenary free. It's really super, super capacitor. 
uh, technology with batteries. So, so no, no, uh, no wires, top, no wires. Wow. It literally goes from one stop to the next. Up goes a pantograph, yes. char charges the oh, at the station. At the station and moves on to the next. So really, it's it's it, it's a superb. It's really tidied the town up. It looks it looks fantastic. And um, where's that at? That's in Newcastle. Okay, yeah. So yeah, so that's exciting. With all of those, you can see these opportunities are boundless, and we 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 can <clears> see the company growing by thirty percent over the next five years. It just strikes me that Australia has really made a commitment to rail transportation. When I was down there and met so many of the CEOs, they were talking about $50 billion of federal investment and just phenomenal. It's huge. I yeah. mean, and that's that's the point I'm right. I'm trying to make. You know, you come from an environment where you've had no money. And right, yeah. Very, very <laughs> Scrape together every nickel. Uh, yeah. you're, in a, you're in a country which um, has got population growth um, that is phenomenal. As I said, 25 years or more of economic growth and a catch-up in terms of the infrastructure requirements and, and a catch-up that's taking place as we speak. Very good. Well, thank you, David, for being with us today and giving us a view into what you're doing, not only in, in Australia, but a look back at how the rail network operates in the United Kingdom. It's very interesting. Thanks for being our guest today on Transit no Unplugged. No trouble. Nice to see you. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.